1: This is Where We Live, from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Growing up is hard to do. Is it any wonder teenage girls and young women turned to magazines like Seventeen and Cosmopolitan for advice? From fashion to relationships? But women's magazines were also a welcome place for women writers. Coming up, we'll learn about the history behind these women-centric publications. First, did you hear Glamour is the latest magazine to end its print publication, opting to go completely digital? Do you prefer digital subscriptions, or do you still get magazines in the mail? And if you still subscribe to women-centric magazines, which ones? We want to hear from you today. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show, Lavanya Ramanathan, is a reporter for The Washington Post, uh, who wrote a piece called with the headline, Women's magazines are dying. Well, we miss them when they're gone. Lavanya, welcome to our
2: show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be
1: here. Uh, we, I mentioned that Glamour is the latest uh, women's magazine uh, to stop publishing its uh, monthly uh, print uh, publication. And I'm wondering what were some of the reasons behind that?
2: Uh, for a lot of these publications, you know, the a sensible reason is this kind of drop in advertising over the years. And that's been, that's been kind of a long time coming. Um, we also saw Teen Vogue make the same decision. Um, Self, a uh, famous magazine for, you know, fitness, um, for women, you know, who are interested in fitness, um, disappeared from the racks in 2017. Seventeen's uh, another one, which, is you know, these are all classic um, magazines that have been around for, for decades, um, all making the same choice at the same time. And a lot of that does have to do with the disappearance of kind of the advertisers, they're moving online. Um, they don't see an audience there anymore. But I think that there's something kind of deeper going on.
1: When we were talking about this show uh, with, uh, with uh, my producer, we were thinking back to some of the magazines we read. And I was uh, just a devotee of Seventeen magazine. Seventeen is one of these uh, mags that's uh, going to start publishing a special issue. So what does that mean? A couple
2: times a year? Um, yeah, basically, a lot of them will kind of do something maybe around uh, fashion week, you know, sort of dependent on um, on major events. I think major, you know, kind of events that appeal to its readers. Probably back to school. Um, a lot of them are, are leaving the option open of doing that, not necessarily committing to any publication. Dave, I also was a was a Seventeen fan, and you sort of graduate from there, right? You go to then you pick up Marie Claire, or Glamour, or Vogue. Um, the magazines, like really, were created to start filling an, a niche in our lives from the time we were, you know, preteens.
1: It's funny; uh, both of us have South Asian names, and I know when I was growing up, there weren't any South Asians in Seventeen magazine. But I was still uh, opening them up uh, until to just to uh, feel like I had something in common with uh, the girls in the in the magazine, uh, Lavanya.
2: Yeah, you know, and this is one of the things I I really um, that really made me want to write about women's magazines because I think that for a lot of girls and women, they um, they sort of spread this message of what girlhood and womanhood should look like and does look like. You know, like there's some glamorous writer in New York um, who's you know banging out these stories, and and a girl in um, in Texas or Topeka or. Sacramento was reading it and getting a sense of like what lipstick she should be wearing, you know. And you always felt like you were you were hip and you knew what was happening in the world um, because of these magazines. Um, and I and I very much had the same experience with, which is um, I would open them and 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 feel as if I was um, learning about America, you know. Um, but I do have I do have you know one of the criticisms I think that not just me but I think a lot of critics of these magazines have is that they were not very diverse. You didn't open them and look inside and see people who looked like you. And that's very much changed. But I wonder if that's um, come a little bit, you know, too little too late.
1: Again, uh, Lavanya Ramanathan is with us, a reporter for The Washington Post, as we talk about uh, Glamour and just other women's magazines that are going all digital. Some have folded completely. Um, if you enjoy reading uh, these magazines, if you remember what it was like to read them uh, growing up, you can join our conversation on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, Lavanya, in your reporting about some of the early days of women's publishing, because there. Were uh, the traditional magazines that uh, women started picking up? Which ones were they, and what did they focus on?
2: Um, we saw the first the first women's magazines to really, um, you know, hit in America, and, and we are not the first market for this. You know, some of them go back much further. Um, we're in the 1800s, or the late 1800s, um, sort of post-industrialization, um, and and in retrospect, I kind of think that maybe that's a big part of why. They thrived. We saw kind of Ladies' Home Journal and Good Housekeeping, and these Seven Sisters is what they were called. There were seven of them. Red Book um, that sort of came up in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, to serve a woman who I think um, was increasingly disconnected from a larger community. Whether they were you know living in urban areas, whether they were um, you know joining this new nuclear family, you know the beginnings of the nuclear family where. It's you, a partner, and some children, and not necessarily an extended family, who could give you advice on cooking, um, advice on how to do laundry or um, you know chores. These magazines really served that niche. They told women how to do these things better, for better or for worse. Um, and I think that was that is what women's magazines ultimately were like. Were built on was this idea of tips, advice, and service that is what they do that kind of for a very, very long time no one else did.
1: And then you started to see uh, some of the magazines start to uh, touch on more taboo topics. I'm thinking of uh, Cosmopolitan uh, uh, with, uh, I think, the first article that was written uh, dealt with the pill.
2: Yeah, it was actually a literary magazine, and they had published plenty of writers that were were well-known and famous, but it was not doing well. And Helen Gurley Brown was tapped. She was a copywriter. She came sort of from the advertising world, and she was tapped to kind of help revive um, Cosmo in the 60s. And the first thing she did was pick up on kind of the vibe that was happening in the United States, which was the rise of um, sexual liberation, um, feminism, and, and she ran with it. And yes, her, the first article that she edited was about the pill. Um, and again, you know, if you think about it, that's a very service story for, again, women in, in parts of the world, parts of the country who didn't have necessarily access or knowledge about those subjects. Suddenly, they were hearing about things like The Pill, about feminism, about women in the workplace. Um, these, these magazines really did transform women. And, and a big part of that was how they got them, too. You know, the funny thing about magazines is you could subscribe to them but ultimately, they were made to be passed around. Uh, in the magazine industry, they have this idea of you know, paid circulation and readership. And they're two different numbers because people subscribe to magazines and then they pass them to a friend. To, they leave them in the subway. They leave them at a doctor's office. And so, so many more people are exposed to them than you could imagine.
1: It's funny that you brought that up, uh, because we think about the magazines that are always there in the waiting rooms of the doctor's office. We heard from a listener, Kim, on Facebook that uh, writes, I hate that when I go for an OBGYN visit or a mammogram, the only magazines in the waiting room are women's magazines. (laughs) Choices are good. Pigeonholing is not. So she speaks to the fact that, you know, she's got a lot of interests, and it's more than just picking up the women's mag.
2: Yeah. You know, this is is the thing that I think, after even writing the story, that we cannot we don't. We don't really know yet. But I suspect that women have changed, you know, and that advertising isn't the only thing that's happening in the world. Um, besides the, the internet, you know, the internet has has taken a lot of what women's magazines do. Um, you know, cooking tips you can now find on Food 52 or Bon Appetit. You can find um, and and food bloggers, of course. You know, and um, makeup tips. You can now watch a YouTube video and find out how to put on makeup, and that's something. You know, magazines could never deliver. They could tell you what to buy. They could not tell you how to put it on. And um, so we've seen some of that audience find that same advice elsewhere. But I also think that the woman has changed, you know, and the American woman is is different. The American woman is asking real serious questions about, do I need to um, look at this magazine that's telling me every month that I need to lose five pounds fast, you know, do I need to um, look at this, this magazine that's telling me about my back fat, um, and, and then the subtle messaging, um, like always having kind of white models on the cover. These sorts of things don't necessarily appeal to the modern, I think, millennial in particular. Millennials are the most diverse generation in our country. They're also much more interested in, in body, body positivity and self-love. And and these magazines, um, their messaging just doesn't speak to that.
1: You can join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six as we talk about uh, the rise and possibly uh, the fact that women's magazines might be dying today. Uh, Amy's calling from Boston. Amy, go ahead.
3: Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um. Yeah, I. It's interesting. You were talking about. Um sort of learning about an American culture um, in reading these magazines as you were growing up and as a white American woman um, I, I didn't learn about American, well I guess I sort of learned about American culture, I really learned that somehow I was lacking by reading these magazines um, because I couldn't buy what they were selling and um, I didn't look like those models and so I, it just made me feel really I don't know, sort of bad. And so I feel like, um, I don't know. I just didn't, I don't think that they were positive. I don't think they were positive for me. I love them, but I didn't think they were sort of positive. And I think sort of the myth of the also about American women, um, and now other women, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, um, the documentary killing me softly, um, about, the marketing and, and the subjugation of, of women and all of that stuff. So you don't know, I just thought it was yeah. sort of yeah. interesting.
2: Well yeah. Amy, yeah, that's Go, so go true. ahead,
4: Lavanya.
2: Oh sorry, that that's so true. I think I think exactly what you're saying is very true for all of us. Is you're like, I love them, but I I also think that they probably damaged me for the long term. Yeah, I think that's very <laughs> true. Um, you know, Gloria Steinem wrote this amazing line about women's magazines, you know, when she decided that Ms. would no longer have advertising and said that these magazines were created to make us want a product, They taught us how to use a product, how to, like, you know, they made us feel that products were necessary and also that those products, we needed those products in our lives to kind of keep our men. Um, And I think that's, it still resonates all these years later. We, you know, um, I think I was in college before I realized what these magazines had really kind of the negative things that these magazines had really instilled in me, too. Uh,
1: Amy, uh, if you're still I wanted to just ask you, which magazines were you reading growing up? And um, even though a lot of the articles made you feel bad, uh, but we, we kept reading them. So what was it about the mags that kept you opening them
3: up? Um, maybe The Hope. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, But I read 17 um and so i guess it was teen 17 um i'm trying to think of what comes after that <laughs> What about, what about Sassy?
1: We heard, um, and, and Amy from Boston, thanks again for calling in. I wanted to go back to our guest, Lavanya Ramanathan, again, a reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, we did hear from a, uh, a listener, uh, actually on Twitter, um, who mentioned uh, Sassy as a great young uh, women's mag in the uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s. It folded in 1994. But this was almost a, the opposite of what Seventeen and the others were um, selling in the sense of talking about beauty tips and, you know, um, how to g- get a boy. Um, it wasn't really about that, and it actually was a little more um, of a, a feminist mag.
2: Um, a little bit more. I think, you know, like going back and looking at it, um, I think a lot of that was uh, their own promotion of themselves. I think sometimes they still they still announced, you know, a sassiest boy in America. They still kind of gave you a guy that you were supposed to have a crush on, and maybe he was like a rock and roller instead of, you know, a football player. But I think there were still some of those... Um, those kind of mainstream messages being sent by Sassy I hate to say it, I'm sorry but, <laughs> but I do I do think that um, in many, many ways and they, these magazines still kind of um, kept coming back to the same message and Miz suffered that same fate too ultimately they struggled once they kind of, you know, got rid of advertising um, and advertisers in a lot of ways pushed um, those messages, you know um, in order for a magazine to survive, that, that's definitely part of it. I do want to say that um, in response to some of these, Sassy being one of them, um, in response to some of these magazines, we saw um, the rise of, of kind of niche magazines for people of color, too, like Latina launched, I want to say, in the 1990s, Essence, Ebony, these other magazines kind of ran on a parallel track. Um, I think ultimately they they still did the same things that, that – these mainstream, um, large circulation women's magazines did.
1: Uh, Lavanya, we touched on uh, you know some of the factors earlier about uh, why a lot of these uh, print publications are going fully digital, um, with the market being oversaturated, maybe being too slow to embrace uh, the impact of YouTube and social media. But now that we have uh, mags like Glamor going all digital, what other uh, formats? What are they going to be experimenting with?
3: Video is
2: definitely uh, is a big thing that they're interested in. I think they're they're sort of grasping onto the same idea that this YouTube, um, the YouTube culture uh, is, is kind of the way to go, except they're doing sort of higher quality produced videos on things like makeup, reviews. We're seeing a lot of those things turn up on magazines as well. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're doing a whole lot better. Um, I, I, I do think uh, Cosmopolitan, for example, has some of the highest numbers of any of these publications online. It's probably been there a little bit longer as well. Um, and, and some of the newer mag- magazines, such as Oprah, uh, you know, actually crazily just launched its own dedicated site in October. So they're a little bit slow to the game. Um, that doesn't mean then in a year or two they won't catch up. The question is whether those readers, uh, you know, the potential readers, I should say, are, are ever coming back, you know, if they're, if they're ever going to come back from Instagram to a Cosmo or a Glamour, you know, where... Um, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you might have encountered one and then kind of become a fan. You know, you really have to go out on the internet looking for something.
1: I want to thank Lavanya Ramanathan, reporter for The Washington Post. We're going to tweet out a link uh, to her uh, article um, at Where We Live. Lavanya, thanks so
2: much for your time. Thanks so much. This
1: was fun. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa Coming up, we're going to learn more about that period in American, cultures, uh, American culture, rather, when women's magazines really took off. And we'll talk about how critiques of these publications have led women to seek out more online publications, as Lavanya mentioned, looking for more than just fashion or relationship tips. Now, do you still seek out magazines geared toward women? Tell us which ones you read or now avoid by joining us, 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. Are women's magazines becoming irrelevant? Certainly magazines that focus only on appearances and relationship advice aren't resonating with young women in 2019 like they once did. Instead, online platforms are grabbing the attention of women today, here and abroad, who want to see more diversity represented, not only in the faces of the people they profile, but in the coverage of issues. Before we talk about the plethora of choices online, I wanted to step back to explore that period when women's magazines really took off. Joining us from a studio at Smith College is Maureen Callahan, the Sophia Smith Collection Archivist in the Special Collections Department at Smith. Maureen, welcome to our show. Oh, it's so great to be here this morning. So we wanted to talk with you because uh, we understand uh, that uh, Smith has in their collection the papers of a woman that we just heard about, Helen Gurley Brown, editor of Cosmo, as well as Gloria Steinem, a Smith grad and co-founder of Ms. Magazine. Uh, tell us why the 60s and 70s was such a exciting time for women publishing.
0: Well, I think it was an exciting time for women publishing because it was such a dynamic time for the women's movement. So if you think about these magazines as an outgrowth of the ways that women are want to be different in public, want to create new opportunities, think about themselves in professions and athletics, women's publications are always this way for women to talk to each other and to talk about their concerns. Um, we have the records of Ms. Magazine itself, in addition to the records of its founders, Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman Hughes, and something that you'll see when you look at Ms. Magazine is that this is an outgrowth of other women's movement activities that are happening at that time.
1: What what was out there in the 60s and 70s besides Ms. and
0: Cosmopolitan? um, Was there a lot of variety? Oh, absolutely. So um, if you come into the archives and you look at this women's history, what you'll notice is that for every organization, women's organization, there's a newsletter, right? And so one of my favorite collections is the records of a group called the Third World Women's Alliance. Um, And they were sort of a national group that had chapters all over the place. And we have the records of their Oakland chapter. And this is a group whose members came out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, so the civil rights movement. And they were in many ways, ways in response to some of the sexism that they saw in the civil rights movement, but also the racism of the women's movement. And so it's this group that's coming together that's trying to think about how they want to promote their own interests, how to think about uh, infant mortality issues, how to make it so that women of color can be in the workplace, how they can be in their communities in a different way. And they have a newsletter, right? They have to have a newsletter. They have to have a newspaper. It's called, in their case, it's called Triple Jeopardy. But when you also look into their records, you see they collect all of these newsletters of all of the other women's organizations around them and all of these publications of women trying to change the world, being parts of these movements, and communicating out so that they can talk about what's important to them and build networks. Uh, We uh,
1: talked earlier with our guest about uh, Helen Gurley Brown um, and how uh, that uh, uh, magazine Cosmo had uh, printed an article about the pill. So uh, you saw magazines like these taking on uh, taboo subjects uh, as culture was
4: changing?
0: I think that's absolutely right, yeah. You know, when you see the founding statement of Ms. Magazine, there's this idea of something for women to read that is controlled by women. And I think the same thing is really true in Cosmopolitan. So as part of our work, we bring these records out for young people to look at in addition to anyone else who would want to see it. And I was preparing for a class of Smith College students who are looking, who are learning to be journalists. And so I brought out issues of Cosmopolitan from the early 1970s, and I open it up, and I see... There's a, there's a story by Nadine Gordimer is, of course, a very important literary figure. There are articles about travel, about being in the world. Um, there's this, it's about the pill. It's about this idea that you can sort of talk, talk about and want a sex life. You can talk about divorce. Um, I think that it's absolutely the case that these magazines during this time reflected the ways that society was changing for women and also sort of promoted the possibilities for some of those changes. Uh, I mentioned
1: earlier that um, you have the papers of Gloria Steinem, who went to Smith and also co-founded Ms. Magazine. Uh, Tell us more about when, when the women's movement was really growing, even the naming of that magazine, how it came to be.
0: Yeah, that's right. So Ms. Magazine was founded by two women, like you mentioned, Gloria Steinem. The other person is Dorothy Pittman-Hughes, who is a black woman. Um, a uh, She's been an advocate for years. We're lucky that both Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman-Hughes are still with us. Dorothy Pittman-Hughes founded one of the first battered women's shelters in New York City. She founded the New York Agency for Child Development. And so these were really serious activists. Um, at the same time that they founded Ms. Magazine, they founded a Um, women's political group called the Women's Action Alliance. And so as they're thinking about how do we talk to women, how do we tell women's stories, there's also some thought to, what are what are we saying when we title these magazines? And and Ms. of course is this sort of title that was invented around this time to think about how, when we refer formally to women, um, why is it that a person's marital status is the thing that comes before their name? And so Ms. is this title that's invented that makes it possible, for it to be just um, to just sort of indicate a gender rather than um, to talk about marital status.
1: Maureen, since you're at Smith College, I'm curious what the response is from the students when they see uh, these old publications and they think about all of the choices they have before them. What are they, um,
0: you know, leaning towards? Oh, yeah. You know, something that I find is, I mean, like all of us, we open it up and we look at, you know, how funny the clothes are. Um, I think in a lot of cases, um, folks are. Pretty appalled by some of the sexist advertising that you'll find in some magazines. Although you certainly wouldn't find as much of that in Ms. magazine. Um, I, you know, but but what I also find is that they're really compelled by small press publications that talk about specific political actions. You know, the meeting coming together so that folks can talk about um, introducing athletics on a university campus for women. Um, I think in some cases it's a sign of success of the women's movement that young people today have naturalized some of the ways that women have more opportunities in the world. And so this opportunity for them to see in these publications the fact that this didn't just happen, that advances for women were the result of a process of people coming together, advocating for change, and then talking about it in print. I, I find that students always find that compelling. This is where we live. We've been getting some history into the evolution of
1: women's magazines. Uh, my guest uh, right now is Maureen Callahan, who's an archivist in the Special Collections Department at Smith College. Um, you can join our conversation, 860 275 If you find that some of these magazines still resonate with you today, or if you think, why bother? Uh you can, you can join us and also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we
5: live. Victoria is calling from Wallingford. Victoria, what's your comment or question? Oh, hi. Um, I retired a couple of years ago, less than two years ago, uh, at the ripe old age of 69. And I had, over the years, I always get a lot of uh, offers for women's magazines, and I never have subscribed to them. But the offers were really, really cheap. So I said, well, I'll get a few of these. So a year ago, I got um, a couple of, two or three of them. And I started to read them. First of all, they're very skinny because they're just dying. And uh, after about the first or second or third month, I realized I don't even want to waste my time in retirement looking at them. So I I bundle them up and uh, give them away. When my friend goes to the VA, he brings them over there. So if anybody has nothing else to read, they can. So I I really concur that it's pretty much a dying industry. Uh, I don't see how uh, they can revive it unless they figure out how to uh, approach people uh, who live in, in the, uh, the, the year 20, 2019.
1: Well, Victoria, thank you uh, for your comment. Uh, I wanted to bring into our discussion now Jennifer Romolini, former editor-in-chief of Hello Giggles, Shondaland.com, and Yahoo, Yahoo Shine, who now works as a digital media strategist. Jennifer, welcome to where we live. Hi, good morning. Pleasure to be here. Were you able to hear our last caller, the points that she made? I was. I was. And what is your response? Because you, uh, you've you seen it uh, through your career. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting when I read your bio. You list, of course, where your work has appeared, but also the line, and in many magazines that no longer exi- exist, has the excitement vanished, uh, Jennifer?
4: Well, I, I just think that the entire business model, sort of top to bottom, is dated and doesn't work for how we consume content anymore, right? So you think about a magazine, um, it's set up like a fiefdom. There's one person whose opinion matters, the editor-in-chief. It's not as collaborative. The editor-in-chief might be a little bit older. Information and culture is changing so fast, so that's one problem with it. And then the second thing is just the way we consume information has changed, and magazines, print magazines, have not been able to stay nimble, if you have a um, – if you're publishing or putting together all of the information four weeks before it's going to publish, things just change too quickly now. It's just culture, society, everything has changed. So the, the model is just outdated.
1: Uh, she also mentioned that uh, when she subscribed uh, in her retirement, uh, the magazines were much thinner than she remembered, uh, indicative of the fact that advertising has gone down and there's less resources for, for staff.
4: Well, sure. Um, uh, there's there's no money in print advertising. It used to be, you know, you'd be at Condé Nast, and a big fashion advertiser would buy a bulk buy across all of the publications, and everybody would kind of win. You'd get several pages of Prada in in Lucky Magazine, in Vogue, in Glamour and then you know that's just not happening anymore and part of that is because they can't judge the eyeballs in the same way you can't, it's not as transparent the numbers are not as transparent to an advertiser as they are in a, a digital space, right? Digital space I know exactly who saw my ad or how many people saw my ad, I know how many times this page was clicked and print is just a guessing game, right? Uh, when, you, uh, when we think about
1: some of the critiques also, and we talked about this a little bit with our previous guests, uh, this idea that um, there wasn't a lot of diversity within the pages, um, you didn't you see a lot of diversity in issues, and, and how is that being correct dis- corrected today, uh, Jennifer, in the sense of when people choose maybe checking out an online community?
4: I think it's being corrected um, both in in uh, digital and in print. I think you can see that um, not only niche magazine, not only niche publications, but in mainstream uh, publications, you know, keeping in mind diversity and keeping in mind um, giving women of color a platform is happening across publishing. Um, I, I do think that it's it's too late. You know, I think that it would have been great if it started a lot earlier when I was in magazines. um, The the common idea was that you could only put a woman of color on the cover in January because the issue didn't get a lot of um, readers. A lot of people didn't buy it, um, which is appalling to think about. Um, So I think that everything, they just, they didn't pick up on the changes fast enough.
1: You can join our conversation, 860 275 My guests today are Jennifer Romolini, former editor-in-chief of Hello Giggles, now works as a digital media strategist. And joining us from the studios at Smith College is Maureen Callahan as Sophia Smith Collection Archivist in the Special Collections Department at the college. Uh, Maureen, we talked a little bit about um, the mags and the collections that you have, um, where when we think about the women's movement, um, how they became more and more popular. When we think about diversity, which were the ones that were put women of color on their covers?
0: You know, it's very clear to me that that had been a priority at Ms. Magazine from the very beginning, and half of that had to do with um, the co-founders, so Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman-Hughes, but it's also clear that the women's movement at that time has had been sort of an expansive movement. There are of course places for critique and I think that the movements have expanded for that. But women's movements were also aligned with gay liberation movements, indigenous people's movements, the civil rights movements. And so when you look at Ms. Magazine, especially during that time, you can see that there's a priority in the advertising to not just be white women there, in the stories to be about all kinds of women and all of their struggles, the ways that the women's movement needed to be um, a more comprehensive movement in order for it to be successful.
1: Uh, Jennifer, did you want to add to that or just thinking about the cultural and social trends uh, today where we're not as gendered? So what's the need for a women's only mag?
4: yeah you know, i don't I don't think there is an, i don't necessarily think that women 's magazines aligned with the women 's movement i mean, I think that they had kind of a different goal i don't even know if women 's magazines were so much talking about being feminist um you know in the sixties seventies eighties nineties I think that one thing is we don't need to think about information so gendered i don't know that we need a general interest um, Publication specifically for women. I think that breaking out the topics is interesting. You know, if you want to know about beauty, then you can go to a beauty site or a beauty magazine. If you want to talk about cooking, same thing. I, I don't know if we need that gender filter anymore in the quite the same way we felt like we did before, because I don't know that the genders feel as siloed. And also, a big thing about women's magazines was that. The idea was that something was wrong with you that needed fixing. And I, I think that women of this generation are, just don't buy into that as much.
1: When we're talking about movements, uh, we should bring up the Me Too movement. And Jennifer, I'm curious if you could talk about your observations. You know, have magazines uh, embraced uh, uh, these feelings that women are having around the country uh, with the Me Too movement, if at all.
4: I mean, I think they have. They're they're now. They have the problem of being under resourced, right? Just like you said, there's not advertising money, so the staffs are smaller, so they don't actually have enough time to do or enough staff to do what they do really well, which is get into these meaty, bigger features and tell them um, in in compelling ways that are tangible in front of you. These are beautiful photographs. You know, we've we've interviewed a ton of people that the the long lead time that works really well for something in print, um, I, I think that again, if the, the longer features are moving into digital now, everything's sort of moving to digital, so it it, it, it the relevance is just not there.
1: Let's talk more about uh, digital only, uh, Jennifer. I mentioned your former editor in chief of Hello Giggles, which was this online community. What were some of the uh, the of the focus that Hello Giggles has to not to reach not only women but men?
4: Well, I mean, I think that. We and this is the same at Yahoo and the same at, at Channel, and Yahoo Shine was for women as well. You know, I think we and what was interesting about all of them is they were ostensibly for women, but our readership was forty to fifty percent men. So the the idea that was something I started to track. You know, in the last ten years, the idea that only women wanted to read this content was false. So only women wanted to read about home design was false. Only women wanted to read about fashion was false. Um, I think that there's really, there's no reason to make things very gendered. And that was something we did at Hello Giggles. We had a very sort of gender fluid, even if it was kind of about like stickers and kittens. It was still like anybody who likes stickers and kittens is welcome here.
1: This is Where We Live. Again, we're talking about the future of women's magazines. We want to hear from you. Uh, the number 860 275 You can also find us on uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we did get a comment uh, on Facebook from Carol uh, who writes, When I was in junior high school in the 60s, I was in the 17 Club. We met during the school day, a room full of girls at desks with the teacher, leading us as we looked at each page. But from what we've been talking about, Jennifer, uh, it sounds like those days are gone. Where uh, people have an affinity for the print publications, Every, everyone's on their phones and uh, looking at um, multiple sites that appeal to them.
4: Well, right. I mean, we we consume content um, article by article, right? That's how. That's it's very hard to define a brand, and part of the reason to get the reason for it, it's difficult to get brand loyalty is because everyone is chasing traffic, right? So if everybody's chasing the same Kardashian story, if you look at if you look for example at the Hearst slate of of publications, you will see the same story on Cosmo as you will on on Marie Claire, as you will on Esquire, because everybody's chasing that traffic so they can get clicks, so they can get more advertising dollars. And when you do that and you don't have a firm brand identity, you dilute the brand so you don't get that core audience. So people aren't engaging with brands in the same way. They're engaging with a single piece of content.
1: Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, you're also a digital media strategist. So uh, moving forward, because we talked about uh, you know, maybe at one time the, the print uh, magazine uh, world was oversaturated, but now we've got so many choices. Uh, where uh, will How will certain uh, websites really uh, define themselves as we see more and more publications going digital? What are going to be the key things that they need to have?
4: Well, I think that what's What's succeeding right now are things that are broad and essential, like the New York Times, right? I, I want the New York Times. It's going to give me all of the information I need. I trust the New York Times. And then on the other side is niche publications, you know, your, your Food 52s, your, your, even your Goops, right? This is very specific. This is for a very specific audience Um, This is a very strong brand identity and it's niche. Sort of everything else is in the saggy middle and that sort of mid-zone is where people are failing, I think, because everybody's chasing the same thing. So when I'm talking to brands, I'm saying, well, what what is your core identity and who are you for? And if we can super serve that core audience, then... You have a better shot of making it than if you're more of a general interest. You're sort of going all over the place. You know, I want to write stories about, you know, power tools and avocados. It's, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work as well. So that sort of niche audience with specific audience, the niche publications with specific audiences right now seem to be faring better than the things that are trying to be more general.
1: Would an example be for the LGBTQ
4: community out magazine? Precisely. I mean, and that's also has so much talent behind it and so beautiful. And I'm, I'm really excited to see that launch, relaunch.
1: Well, I want to thank uh, Jennifer Romolini, again, former editor-in-chief of Hello Giggles, Shondaland.com, and Yahoo Shine, who now works as a digital media strategist. Thank you so much for your perspective. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having this pleasure. Uh, Maureen Callahan is still with us from the Smith College uh, studio there, an archivist in the Special Collections Department. We've got some photos on our website about the collection. If listeners want to learn more, maybe check it out. Where do they
0: go? How do they find out more? Oh, gosh, I hope they sure do. So um, a first great place to start is with our website, which can tell you how to come in and look at this stuff in person, put your hands on it. We hold these materials in the public trust. We've been collecting women since 1942. We collect suffrage movements, the birth control movement, um, movements for reproductive justice. And so if there's something about American women's history that you're interested in, you can probably find a way to look at it here. So please check out our website, come to Smith College, we're open to the public. And we really hope to see folks there.
1: Maureen, again, thank you so much for your time uh, here on Where We Live. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall After the break, we're going to actually learn more about a Connecticut department store way back that had a publication geared towards women. We're talking in the late 19th century. We're going to hear from the Connecticut Historical Society about fashions. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Luciana alba When senior producer Lydia Brown and I were talking about this show, we wondered about how local department stores reached out to potential female customers beyond the traditional sales catalog. turns out in the late 19th century, there was a publication called Fashions produced by Connecticut Department Store. For more on this, joining me in studio is Andrea Rapaz, Director of Exhibitions and Collections at the Connecticut Historical Society. Andrea, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Most of us are familiar with G. Fox, but tell us about another. Another store that uh, actually
6: published, uh, published this uh, uh, publication called Brown Thompson? Yes, mm-hmm. Brown Thompson and Company. Um, Brown Thompson and Company actually started in 1866 when um, three gentlemen, James Thompson, Frank Brown, and William McWhorter were merchants from Boston who were looking to move. And so as they were looking around the country where they wanted to go, they decided they wanted to settle in Hartford because they saw a prosperous city and they saw... Uh, growing suburbs that could supply them with lots of customers. Um, So they moved here and set up a small 4,000-square-foot store on the south um, end of Main Street in Hartford. And at that time, we didn't have department stores as we know them today. It was a really specialized thing. So they were selling dry goods. They were selling cloth and other things related to that for sewing. Um, and when did they shift to more experienced shopping, so to speak? Indeed. So they quickly outgrew their space. And in 1877, they moved down the street to a brand new building that was known at the time as the Cheney Building. Um, it was built by a really um, well-known architect, Henry Hobson Richardson. So it's still one of the more uh, significant, um, significant architectural buildings in Hartford. Um, it, it expanded their space by four times. So they had about 15 to 16,000 square feet of retail space. And so they were doing what other department stores were doing, and they were adding um, different departments slowly as they saw the needs of their customers. You mentioned H.H. Richardson. Is this the building on Main Street where City Steam is now located? It sure is, right next to where the G. Fox building was. So that really turned that center of Main Street into a shopping district for Hartford. And so who were the people that went to this department
1: store? And I guess I'm curious about um, you know why they then decided to put out a, a publication geared more towards women.
6: Sure. Um, well, they catered to an um, audience that wanted more uh, international fashions. They, If you look at some of their ads that were in city directories, that said that they carried goods from England, from France, and from Germany as well. Um, I was reading an article in the Hartford Current where a former employee was talking about um, how he remembered Elizabeth Colt, Samuel Colt's widow, would come up and shop there, and she'd drive her uh, carriage up in the morning, spend half the day shopping, and then go home for lunch. So it was a... Um, Really well-known, huge um, department store that at the time rivaled some of the department stores in um, New York and Boston. So tell us more about Fashions. Sure. (laughs) Um, So Fashions was first launched in October of 1891. And so what Brown Thompson was doing was, again, what a lot of the department stores at the time were doing. They were not just selling goods. They were selling The store, they were selling a brand. They wanted people to come in and spend time and shop. So the best way to do that was giving them information about what they needed to buy or what the store thought they needed to buy. Um, So Factions gave a lot of information about what was new and current in terms of clothing. But this wasn't just clothing store. It was also um, tips on entertaining, also tips on how to take care of yourself. They had some um, articles that were written by doctors. And later on in the run, they talked about bringing in women doctors to write some of those articles so they would be very specific for the readers.
1: Was that controversial at the time?
6: Um, I'm not sure. I think it was definitely not a very controversial magazine. They didn't really (laughs) dabble into um, controversial topics. They didn't want to scare customers away. (laughs) Yes. um, There was one um, article that talked about suffrage a little bit, and it didn't necessarily take an anti-suffrage stance, but it really talked about – or what it didn't like was the fact that women were spending outside of the, out, time outside of the home and really neglecting the children, as that was. Placed. So, was this something that uh, they could
1: subscribe to and pick up uh, when they went to the? I'm just curious about how they got it.
6: Sure, it was both. So, when it was first offered. Um, you could get a yearly subscription for 30 cents or an issue for 5 cents, but of course they would give it to customers for free. So if you came in and asked for it, they'd give you a free copy of it. You mentioned that this uh, department store rivaled some that you would
1: find in New York City. So when they started putting out fashions, how did other department stores react?
6: Um, that I'm not sure. And I also wonder if um, some of this content was being shared with other department stores in other states. So another Connecticut part department store wouldn't have been um, having the same information, but I think maybe another one would because there are articles written by nationally and internationally known writers. So, um, yeah. Uh, so tell us, when
1: we when uh, subscribers picked it up, was it um, like a, a newsprint, and did it have illustrations?
6: Yes, it was definitely a newsprint. It was a pretty large format. Um, when it's closed, it's probably about 16 inches tall and 11 inches wide, so you open it up, and it's really quite large, and it was in newsprint. It did have a lot of illustrations in it. It built itself as a illustrated monthly magazine for American women. So the front cover would usually have a gorgeous engraving of um, the latest fashion made by some of the um, well-known fashion designers in Europe, just to give inspiration. And then as you got inside, there were um, more engravings. And as the um, publication progressed, they actually started including photographs so they would include photographs of well-known actors or writers. Could you give us an idea of some
1: of the fashions that we might see in in, the, in this ma- in this publication?
6: Sure. The thing that stands out to me when I was looking at it too was um, mostly how sleeves changed during this time period. So the um, magazine ran from eighteen ninety one to at least nineteen oh six, maybe a little bit later. But they would have um, drawings that would just show a line of sleeves and the different sleeve shapes that you could you could have. <laughs> I understand this content was considered aspirational. So tell us more about what that meant. It sure, sure. So, um all of the women that they portrayed in this magazine were really um for wealthy women who had time and leisure or or women who wanted to have um time and leisure. They had one woman who was an author, uh Mrs. John Sherwood who wrote an etiquette um an etiquette column and she had written a book in the 1880s called um I'm going to lose what it was. But what really what that um, book was about was an etiquette book for women who were recently wealthy and needed to learn how to move in the social circles of the wealthy.
1: So this started in the late 19th century. How long did fashion stick around before they stopped publishing?
6: Sure. Um, the last um, mention I could find of it was 1906. So it may have gone on a little bit longer, but I couldn't find a record of that. Do we
1: know why it, it, it um, was ended?
6: I'm not sure. Around the turn of the century, um, Frank Brown and James Thompson were retiring. So it's possible that the store was changing and they may have decided to move in a different direction or there may have been other ways that they could have reached their audience. You mentioned the owners were retiring.
1: So what happened to Brown, Thompson & Co.?
6: Sure. Um, Well, they went on and through the 1930s, they were a really prosperous um, department store. And in 1935, they were actually bought out by G. Fox & Company. And they kind of existed next to each other. And in the late 30s, there was a really large expansion, and so um, the building, which is a huge, massive stone and steel structure, was put and rolled 110 feet down so they could make room to expand. G Fox, um, in the store closed completely in 1969. In, excuse me, in 1969, and merged with G Fox.
1: Again, Andrea Rapaz is Director of Exhibitions and Collections at the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, Andrea, whenever we um, talk about history, our listeners are definitely interested. And so uh, tell us more if people wanted to learn more about fashions. If they go to the museum, what can they find?
6: Sure. Well, um, come to our front desk and sign in and come in. We're open um, Tuesdays through Saturdays, Tuesday through Thursday, 12 to 5, and Friday and Saturdays, 9 to 5. Um, You can come into our special collection library. Just want to give everyone a little heads up that there is a registration process because this is rare um, material, but you can come in and you can look through these magazines. We have 31 issues um, in our collection.
1: Well, that's good information to have. And we also have a pick of fashions on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Again, the Connecticut Historical Society is a great uh, resource uh, in our community. So we thank you, Andrea, so much uh, for coming in today.
6: You're welcome. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown, thanks to Carmen Baskoff. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Coming up on Monday, we're going to explore what it means to have a police civilian review board, something that's been established uh, uh, for the first time in the city of New Haven. And just to tease our listeners, we're going to be starting a new series, a new Where We Live series, where we're going to actually be going out to the many diverse communities in our state to have coffee chats with you. And we're going to have details coming up uh, next week here on Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.